You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Lord, I don't know more beautiful words than those spoken in Scripture when you said, it is finished. The fact that you took our sin and our debt upon your shoulders, that you hung there dying like a criminal, that you stood in our place, taking the pain and the punishment that we deserve, so that we could be reconciled to you, so that we could move into eternal glory with our Savior and our God. I rejoice in Jesus' victory. It was finished on that cross. Meaning that it was, it's by grace through faith that we are saved, not of any works that we do ourselves. That doesn't mean that there's not work to do, Lord, but we don't do it to please you because Christ has already pleased you. We do it out of obedience and love for you. We're thankful, Lord, for the sacrifice of Jesus. We're grateful, Lord, that through that sacrifice, through understanding the beauty of the sacrifice, we can worship you in your glory. And that you gather us together as believers to live in unity with one another to do the work of the mission that you have set before us, to proclaim the good news of the glory of Jesus. Lord, help us to to live in that truth, that we aren't called to just Sunday morning worship. We are called to lives of spiritual worship. We are called to a life of submission to you. We are called to follow you anywhere because you came to us when we didn't deserve it. When we were broken and in rebellion against you, Christ died for us. Lord, help us to to know that and to see that. This morning as we open your word, Lord, as we look at your scripture, help us to see the beauty of what it means to be the body of Christ. Be with us this morning, Lord, as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. If you want to, get your Bibles out. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. Um, I hope you had a big breakfast. If not, um, Sherry back there has some Jolly Ranchers for y'all to munch on. (laughs) Um, What do you think about when you think about the church? Do you think about a little white building with a steeple or a room with blue chairs? And gray carpet, a place where we come to sing songs, where somebody gets up and preaches a word and we worship the Lord? Do you think about steeples or bulletins or hymnals or organs, stained glass windows? Do you think about the gothic, ornate, beautiful buildings? What do you think about when you think about the church? We all have an image. If I said to think about a church, what would you think about? What would the image be? It's usually tied to a place. A place that we come together, maybe a place where you were baptized, a place where your parents forced you to come, a place that is special, where we don't say the same things inside the church building that we would outside the church building, a place where we still remuxious kids so they don't tear up something. After all, they have to respect the Lord's house, right? And all that's well and good. But all those definitions of the church don't really reflect the true nature of the church. 
But before we get there, I want to do a quick theology of places, places of importance throughout the Bible real quick. I want us to understand and think about the Old Testament for just one second. When the Israelites were saved out of Egypt and they were living their lives roaming around the desert, God instructed Moses with very detailed instructions on how to build a place called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a place where God would come and dwell with his people. This is where they would worship God. This was God's presence on earth represented in the tabernacle. And then later Solomon would build the temple. This was the intersection, the place where heaven and earth overlapped the intersection of the creator and the created. God was with his people but he was separated from them as well. There was no direct access to him. Only those who met strict requirements were able to come into God's presence. And that only happened once a year. And it was from one type of man from one specific tribe who had one specific job. And his name was the high priest. And he would go into this place called the Holy of Holies. He would have to travel through a veil. And if he wasn't cleaned up before he went in there, he would die. They ended up tying a rope around his ankle to pull him out if they needed to. There was a distinction between, a very holy distinction between where God dwelled and where people dwelled. Yet, God dwelled among his people. His presence would sit on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and he would dwell with his people, demonstrating both his holiness, that we can't approach him how we want to, through the separation and his intimacy in presence. The fact that he was with them, he didn't have to be, but he was. That's amazing enough, but that's not even the end of the story. God's desire to be with his people went further than the tabernacle. It went further than the temple. God put on flesh to live with his people. Jesus came and lived outside of the temple. We look at John chapter one, verse 14. It says this, the word became flesh And dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right here, this phrase, when it says dwell, literally the word came to tabernacle among us. Jesus came to be with us, to lead us and to teach us and to show us the character of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 puts it this way He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creations. Overall creation. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says it this way Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through Him. The Son, here's the important part. Well, it's all important, but this is the, the kicker. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact impression, expression of His nature sustaining all things by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on on high. You see, God put on flesh and dwelt or tabernacled with his people. Jesus Christ is the son of God, entered into this world to dwell with his creation. This was far more amazing than a tabernacle or a temple. And then through Jesus' obedience to the Father, his sacrifice on that cross and his resurrection from the dead, our relationship with God fundamentally changed. Jesus is now the great high priest who grants us direct access to God without the need of an earthly mediator. 
Jesus put de- Jesus's death put an end to the need for a physical dwelling place on earth for God. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, it says this, Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earthquake quaked and the rocks were split. At Jesus' death, the veil in the temple, the curtain that separated God's holiness from his people, tore in two. The need for a tabernacle, the need for a temple, the need for God's dwelling place on earth had become obsolete in the death and resurrection of Christ. God dwells with his people. And you may be asking, Josh, you're talking about the body of Christ. What does this have to do with the body of Christ? What does this have to do with the question, what is the church? I need us to see that we live in a fundamentally different time from the Israelites. That Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, changed things completely. So the question is, what is the church? The church is not a place. The church is not a building. The church is a people. God no longer chooses to dwell in a building, but he dwells in his people. So if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you are following after him, you are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says this, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Now it's nice to have a building to sit in. It's nice to have TVs. It's nice to have sound and songs. It's nice to have air conditioning. Praise the Lord. It's nice to have running water, electricity. These things are nice, but they are not the church. You, you are the church. First Corinthians chapter three, verse 16 says this. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you. Now we do have to be a little careful here. Okay. Cause Paul is teaching that collectively the people who make up the church in Corinth are God's temple. The word he uses for you. Don't you yourselves know is a plural term. So he's talking to the whole congregation. You are the temple of the Holy spirit. He isn't speaking strictly about individuals, but about a group of like-minded believers as the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is not to say that the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in individuals. Rather, that to teach us that the church or the temple of God is bigger than individuals. There is a corporate understanding about the people of God. Individualism is antithetical to Christianity. Yes, Jesus died for the individual. And yes, he calls individuals through the gospel into the family. But we are called to be together. We are never meant to be followers of Jesus alone. We are meant to gather, to work, and to move forward together. This is demonstrated simply by the language that the New Testament authors use to talk about God's people, the church. It's plural. And we will see this in a minute, but that doesn't mean that we lose our individuality. Rather, it means it highlights the grander scope of the calling, that we're not alone. We work better together. This morning, we're going to look at one of the many images used to describe the New Testament church. That is the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31. Paul is teaching these believers in Corinth that it's so beautiful. He focuses on both the corporate nature of the church and the individual nature of each believer. 
We have a responsibility as both a group of believers and as individuals. One of the things we will see in this passage is that God has uniquely chosen you to be a part of this local assembly of believers. You're not here by accident. You're not here by happenstance. You're not here by blind luck. You are here for a purpose. You're here to help build up the body of Christ. You are here to uniquely and beautifully help First Baptist Louise spread the gospel to those who don't know it. So the main thing I want you to get together to kind of focus, the body of Christ is designed by God to do the work of God through unity, diversity, and love. We'll see this live in unity in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. So we live in unity as believers. What is unity? Simply put, it's accord or harmony. Working together to accomplish a goal or a mission. Now the question remains, like, how do we find our unity? Where do we get our sense of unity? And as followers of Jesus, we fundamentally get our unity from the Trinity, the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working together to accomplish their mission of salvation, of redemption, of reconciliation for their people. God the Father is the author of salvation. God, Jesus the Son is the pathway of salvation. And the Holy Spirit is the communicator of salvation, the sealer of that salvation. And they work together in perfect unity, perfect harmony, and they are the example that we look to. The unity of the Trinity is the model and the basis for our unity as the body of believers. Now, I could spend a whole sermon on unity. I'm not going to. But what we need to know is that when it comes to our salvation, we are all equal. We are all sinners that had to be redeemed. The fact that we have been saved, we have been called and been brought into the family of God, God, it is imperative that we are unified. Unity in the church is not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And it has been modeled to us by the unity of the one who saved us. There is no second class citizen in the kingdom of God from young to old, from rich to poor, from this side of the tracks or that. In the kingdom of God, we are unified. We are one. Now that's all well and good, but where do we as a church find our unity? Yes, we find it in the Trinity That's as the model. We see the unity in the Trinity, but how do we practically stay unified as a body of believers? How does Paul lay out the unity that we share in these couple of verses? One, he wants us to see our shared identity. He wants to see uh, us to see our shared spirit, and he wants to see our shared mission. One way that we find unity first is through our shared identity. When we have encountered, when we have an encounter with God, our lives fundamentally change. Not just our lives, though, our very identity. You are no longer merely an individual. You have been made a child of God. You've been brought into the body of Christ. You don't live in isolation. You are called to live in community. And the glue that holds us all together isn't our backgrounds, it's not our friendships, it's not our shared affinity for a particular sports team. The glue that holds us together is the redemption found in Jesus. We have a shared salvation. 
The fact that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that we were all enemies of God, that we were all living in rebellion, but God saw fit to call us sons and daughters. That is our new identity. And our identity is a big deal. If we don't find our identity in who Jesus is and what he has done for us, what we start doing is we start building little kingdoms for ourselves. We start building walls. We start basing our association with one another on our personal preferences rather than on the king who saves us. Our family name, our stature, our renown become more important than God. Our glory becomes more important than his. When we are saved, we become children of God, which makes our identity change. And we have to renew our mind. We have to refocus who we are on him. Now, as children of God, we are royal ambassadors for the king of the universe. We represent him as our king and our father. Our citizenship has changed. We are now citizens of heaven, walking around this world, creating and cultivating the kingdom of God everywhere we go. We are no longer beholden to the things of this world, but we are about the things above, the kingdom of heaven. As ambassadors, we represent God and partake in what he has done on earth as it is in heaven. We become a new creation when we are in, where we are in right relationship with our creator. What's the beautiful thing about this new creation is that God doesn't just take what is broken and patch it up. He makes something completely new. He makes you new. Our desires, our affections, our motives have to change, have changed and should be driven by God's motive of love and desire to see other lives changed. When God calls us to himself, he's making us into his masterpiece, fit to do the work that he has designed for us. This is what Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared ahead of time for us to do. When God saves us, he calls us to do good works. That's part of our identity. We are workers for the kingdom. We are called to do the good works that he has prepared for us. We are invited into his mission, not because he needs us, but because he wants us to be involved. He wants us to participate. We are also now a royal priesthood. That's what 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We now as a Royal priesthood have access to the father unfettered access that had never been granted to people outside of Christ. We are now allowed to enter into the presence of the King boldly approaching the throne of grace and asking for wisdom and the power to accomplish the works that he has set out for us to do. Every time we gather to worship, isn't, it isn't a mundane thing. We are here to be together, to celebrate the life that we have been given. Not only that, but when we are in the world as priests, we are mediating the kingdom of God to the world. We are living redemptively. Again, this idea of cultivating the kingdom of God wherever we go. Living redemptively, making the places that we go and the people we meet better for have meeting us. We live a life of excellence following after Jesus. We are set apart and we are distinct from the world while getting into the mud to declare to the lost where they can be cleansed. This is your identity. An ambassador, a new creation, a masterpiece, a royal priest working on behalf of God. This is our shared identity. This is who we are as the body of Christ.
Not only do we have a new identity in Christ that we share, we also have a shared spirit. Each born-again believer has the Holy Spirit residing in them at all times and in all places. The Holy Spirit doesn't change depending on who has him. He is consistent and unchangeable. He is calling us each to sanctification and urging us to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. We are all on this journey to become more like Christ together through the power of the Holy Spirit. The shared spirit that we have enables us to love one another, to care for one another, and to work with one another. Remembering that we are the temple of God. Meaning that we should also be careful how we speak and think about one another. How we treat you reflects how I really think about God. If we have hostility or anger, frustration, or hatred towards one another, we need to remember that each of us is an image bearer in the temple of the Holy Spirit. That we are all on this road to sanctification together. It may look different for each one of us, but we need to encourage each other, love one another, and support one another if we seek to run this race and finish well. In addition to a shared identity and a shared spirit, we also have a shared mission. And what is our shared mission? To continue the work that Jesus did, started. To make disciples of all nations. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always until the end of the age. Go and make disciples. All people everywhere need to hear the gospel. All people need to know the reality of hope, love, joy, peace, truth that is found in Christ alone. All people need to hear that God loves them and wants them to be in a relationship with them. All people need to know the love that brings about change. And we must not lose sight of this mission. Now, not all people are going to respond positively to the message, but it doesn't matter if they res- how they respond. Our calling isn't to convert, it is to convey. We proclaim the message of the gospel. We proclaim the message that God has given us. And those who respond will be discipled. Those who seek truth are called by God. But we, w- we must not lose sight of the mission. The mission to proclaim, the mis- mission to teach the message of Jesus and to make disciples where we live, work, and play, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. Go and make. When I first came here almost three years ago, I met with the leadership team, and I asked them this question, and you've probably heard me ask this question before, but I want you to listen to it one more time because some things bear repeating. If we, as a congregation, stopped meeting tomorrow, would anyone notice? Would anyone other than ourselves care that we didn't come, that we no longer were a church? Would the community feel the impact of us if we were no longer here? If the answer is no, then we're not doing the work of Jesus. If the answer is no, then we need to re-examine why God has called us to exist. If the answer is no, then we need to repent and do the work of spreading the gospel to the people in our community. This is our mission. This is our calling. We cannot solely become inward focused. We exist as believers to bring glory, honor, and praise to the one who saved us by telling others about the life transforming reality of the God who saved us. 
We are each missionaries. An old preacher said this. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. How many people in our communities aren't worshiping? And how many of our churches aren't living on mission? How many people are out there living their lives condemned to hell because we're not going out there and telling them about the good news of the gospel? Every week, there are churches that are shutting their doors for good. Churches that no longer exist. And why is that? Well, I don't know all the answers, but I will tell you this. The moment a church body forgets that they have a shared identity, a shared spirit, and a shared mission, that's when breakdown happens. The moment that the people are more about building little kingdoms for themselves rather than focusing on the kingdom of God, that's when things start to fall apart. We need to remember that if we take our eyes off of Jesus, we will cease to exist. To stay focused on the mission that God has set before us, we have to know that we have to do it together. If we forget that, then it will not be too long before our doors are closed. We have to do this together. Living in unity remembering our shared identity, our shared spirit, and our shared mission. Jesus has called us to live in unity, but he has created each one of us individually and purposefully. That's what Paul's going to lead in next to. Unity does not mean uniformity. We are each created to play a part in God's church. Verse 14. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body... It is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each, part, each one of the parts of the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, or the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, and our unrespectable parts, we are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable. What is Paul saying here? He's talking a lot about the body. He's talking about the diversity and not just diversity, but the fact that in the diversity that God has called us to, we thrive. Think about it this way. A football team has many players that make up the team, right? They aren't all quarterbacks. They aren't all linemen. They are a team working together on what? A shared mission. Their mission is to win the football game. But if one player doesn't do what he's supposed to do, the whole team suffers. If the left guard just backs up, what's going to happen? The quarterback's going to be tackled. Right? So it is for the church. If you don't like the football thing, I've got another one for you. And since you're Baptist, I know you're going to like this one. The church is like gumbo. All right? Many different ingredients mixed together without losing the individual parts. The church isn't like a tomato bisque all blended together where all the diversity and individuality is blended out. Rather, God has mixed us and put us together as individuals to work in harmony to make the sum of its parts better than each individual part. We have to remember that the church ex- body exists both for our good and for God's glory. 
we should marvel at the fact that God has chosen to place us in a church body. Because we all know that the Christian life is difficult. It is difficult to always keep our eyes on Jesus. Always keep our eyes on the things above. It is difficult to take up our cross and follow Jesus. That is why we need one another. The Christian life is never to be lived in isolation. You aren't an island. We need each other. Now I've heard and experienced this myself. What's the hardest day of the week to get up and get ready? What is the day of the week that seems like everything that could go wrong does go wrong? What is the easiest day of the week to mail it in and say, well, at least I tried. It's Sunday, right? Sunday's the day that you just kind of go, man, it's so easy. The day that we worship. Why is that? Because the enemy knows the importance of our gathering, even if we don't. Sunday morning should be a refreshing, encouraging, and lovely time as followers of Jesus. This should be among the most important days of the week. However, the sad reality is, is that many feel of it, feel, many of us feel like we can do this Jesus thing alone. Or at least we see the gathering of the saints as a decent goal rather than an utmost priority. We will make other events a priority, but if we miss church, it's okay, we'll go next week. And one of the reasons I think that is, is because we don't see the church as it should be. We see it as something to be consumed. We see going to church as an event that we go to, not worship that we participate in. We don't understand the spiritual reality of what goes on when we, wor- when we worship together. We haven't been taught or we don't care that the church g- gathering isn't primarily for me. It's never been a primarily about you. We gather together for one another to worship the one who has brought us together. If you think that coming to church is just about coming to get entertained or coming to get fed, coming to hear some guy be very long-winded from behind the pulpit or give a pep talk or rant, you're missing the point. We gather, yes, we gather to grow and to learn. We do gather to sing praise. We do gather because it's the good and right thing to do. But we don't gather selfishly. We don't gather to be entertained. We primarily gather to glorify God and to encourage one another. And one of the ways that we encourage one another is through serving one another, through the giftings that God has given us using those gifts. You are called to serve the body of Christ. And you have a unique calling when it comes to that. God called you to himself and he allows you to partake in his mission. And he has equipped you to do so. He has equipped each one of you to uniquely serve the body of Christ. The fact that God has made you a part of a church body should encourage you and make you want to serve the mission of the church rather than aid or, or serve one another. Here's the beauty of God's gifting. You are uniquely gifted to serve this body. I'm talking to each one of you. You are each uniquely gifted to serve the body of Christ. If you call First Baptist Louise your home, you are called to aid in the ministry of this body. You are called, saved, equipped, and placed into this body, not to sit on the sidelines. You are called to serve your brother and sisters in Christ and to magnify the Lord. You see, the ministry of First Baptist Louise is your ministry. You have a place to plug in. And if you haven't found one, we can find you one. Look at verse 18 in chapter 12. But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. 
You see that? But as it is, God has arranged, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. If you're not serving the body of Christ, you're robbing the church of your unique gifting. You're robbing yourself of your full God-given potential. And you're disobeying God by not submitting to the calling that he has set before you and offering your gifts to him. You may think or believe that the area that you have been gifted to is insignificant. But let me assure you, that's not true at all. In whatever area God has gifted you, it is not insignificant. Each and every gift that God gives is good and important for life and health of the church. God doesn't waste his gifts. He gives according to his glory, his goodness, and his mercy. Using the gifts that God has given you allows the body of Christ to work as it should. We are each important and necessary. Otherwise, God wouldn't have called you here. And you should rejoice. We should all rejoice at the gifts that God has given us. Since he has arranged us the way that he saw fit, he has purposely put you here. He has orchestrated your placement in this body so that you can use your gift to be a blessing to the church body. I know that might be overwhelming. I know that you may not be like, I don't know what I'm gifted in. I've been asked this before. How do we discover God's gift in our lives? And this is a tricky question because there's a bit of a mystery that comes to it, comes with it sometimes. But if you walked up to me after the service and you said, I don't know what my gifts are. How can I figure it out? I would tell you that oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, the gifting that God has given you is where what you are passionate about intersects what you're good at. Let me say that again. Where what you're passionate about intersects with what you're good at. Can a good old boy be a preacher who never thought that he had the talent or ability to preach? Absolutely. Can God equip the quiet introvert to sing songs of praise in front of a congregation? Absolutely. Can he give his gifts as he sees fit? Yes. But a good place to start to find your gifting, to see where, where you are passionate and where your ability lies. Sometimes we have to grow into our ability. Sometimes we have to grow into our passion. I never thought, I never wanted to stand before people and preach. But God had different plans. If you're wondering where your gifting is, sometimes you just need to step out on faith and start doing something. When you start doing it, maybe God will grow you in that. Or maybe you'll start doing something and you figure out that's not it. There's no formula. Just do something. Figure out a place to plug in. Let's look at the last few verses. 24, the end of 24. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but the member that the members who have the same concern for one another. So if one member suffers, all members suffer with them. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. You Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church, 
first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, leading, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. Sometimes we know how God has gifted us. Other times we need to learn what our gifts are. Some of us are teachers. Some of us work really well with our hands. Some of us are adamant prayer warriors. Some are really good with numbers. Some are really good helpers. They just like to help people. Some are good singers or musicians. They're good with kids or super friendly or kind. Regardless of how God has gifted you, you should use that gift for the edification of the body and for the mission of God. What are you good at? What are you passionate about? What do you think God's gifting to you has been? Whatever it is, put it into practice. Use it. Not for your own glory, not for your own praise, but because God has graciously provided it to you. Remember that God has given you the gifts he has given you so that you may be a blessing to the world around you and you may be a blessing to the church. Do not hoard your gift. Do not sit selfishly, idly by keeping your gift to yourself. You're a member of a body, the church. And if you don't use the gift that God has given you, then you are missing out on being a blessing. Keep in mind that everything that God has given you, everything that God has given you, you are simply a steward of. Whether it's money, resources, gifts, talents, whatever it is, God has given them to you to steward. Use them wisely. Use them frequently. Use them to encourage, to educate, and to bless others for the glory of God. Now in verse 31, Paul says this, I'll show you a better way. And that leads into chapter 13. Most of us know that as the love chapter. It's read at weddings. It's tattooed on bodies. It's hanging on walls. As decorations, people love 1 Corinthians 13. And I agree, it's a beautiful passage. And oftentimes we miss, we miss the implications of it. 1 Corinthians 13 is about the love shown to one another in the church body. Now sure, there are applications towards loving others in different situations. But here, Paul wants us to know that it is loving to use the gifts that he has given us. It is loving to encourage and to educate and to bless others with the gift that he has given us. It is loving and beautiful when we use our gifts for the good of others. Now, this isn't a sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but it's important that we know where Paul is going so we know why he's saying what he's saying. The reality is you demonstrate your love for God and for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ when you serve the church. So how do you truly love the body of Christ? Well, one, you learn, you love through service to the church. Sometimes you can only find your gifting when you start serving. You may be help, uh, interested with helping lead worship, so we don't have to watch these videos anymore. But you'll never know. I mean, I love the videos. I'm not, I'm not trashing those. You may be interested in helping with the children's ministry. We always need people working in the nursery, right, Corey? Can I get an amen? Serving in one capacity or another allows you to see your gifts in action and may spur you on to serve even more. Have you ever felt distant from God? Have you ever felt out of sync or like your relationship with God is stale? Well, let me tell you generally that's because you're not serving. You're not using the gifts that he has given you. The more you serve, the closer you will feel to God. There's something about submitting your talents and your gifting to God that draws us closer and closer to him. 
Obedience and submission to God generally cause our relationships with him to flourish. Serving others also takes our eyes off of ourself and place them squarely on fulfilling the great commandment of loving God and loving people. How else do we love? We love through intentional community. This is one of the drums that I beat continually. We need to love, know, and grow with one another. You can't grow in your relationship with Christ in isolation. You can't see the needs of one another if you live isolated from the others. We all have stories. We all have something to contribute. We all have different giftings. Get to know someone. Be vulnerable. Be honest. Be open. The best way to get to know someone is through serving with them intentionally. The church body isn't supposed to be built around programs and personalities. Rather, it is to be built around deep and loving friendships. We are not truly together as the body of Christ if we only think about each other on Sunday, if we only concern ourselves with one another for one hour a week, if the only time that we interact with or ask someone how they're doing is when we come to church on Sundays, you're missing the beauty of Christian friendship, of Christian community. We need one another. And part of that is not just waiting for other people to come to you. It's offering yourself to other people. That takes intentionality. You have to be purposeful when living in community. Not only that, but we also love through empathy. Verse 26 tells us we mourn with those who mourn and we rejoice with those who rejoice. As one body, we need to work together. We should remember any joy is every joy. Any pain is everybody's pain. Someone has probably been through something similar that you're going through. Lean on them. But the only way you will find out is if you get to know people. If we become apathetic toward the mission of God or towards one another, we will cease to exist as a church body in the future. We need to take seriously the calling that's been said before us. We need to love God and love people, including the people already a part of this family. We need to stay focused on the message of the gospel, on our love for one another, on the mission of the church. And if we lose sight of any of those things, we are going, we are in danger. Now, here's the thing. I do know in the church that there are workhorses when it comes to serving this body. I know that some of you put in a ton of time and energy into making sure things run smoothly. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to those of us who only come to consume and don't serve. Now, I'm not trying to guilt trip anyone. I simply want you to see that God has designed his church and put it together in such a way that we can all reap the blessings, the blessing of giving and receiving. So today, as we leave, I want you to think about where you can plug in and serve this body of believers. Now, in order to do that, in order to be a part of this body of believers, you need to First, have a relationship with the Lord. In order to have the spiritual gifts that are available to you, you need to know the giver of those gifts. So if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't submitted to his lordship, I want you to know that today is the day to do that. This is the day that you need to give your life to Jesus, that you need to repent of your sin or turn away from your sin and follow after him. Because if you haven't done that, you aren't ready to be a part of the body of Christ. In fact, you are his enemy and you are living in open rebellion against him. But he has made a way for you to be made right with him through the sacrifice of Jesus. 
Jesus died so that you can be adopted into the family of God and be a part of the body of Christ. For those of you who already believe, why are you here? Where can you serve? Why has God placed you at First Baptist Louise? We can have excitement for what God has done in the past, but let's not forget that God's not done yet. Are you committed to serving him? Are you committed to serving the church? Are you committed to telling others about the greatness of our Savior? Are you functioning as a member of this body or as a spectator on the sidelines? Make a commitment today to find the calling and the gifting that God has given you. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, follow him, serve him, love the believers around you. If you don't know him as Savior, submit to him. Allow him to transform you and create you into who he wants you to be. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your love, your compassion, your grace in our lives. Lord, help us to be your hands and feet. Help us to love one another. And in loving one another, we can go out and we can serve the community. We can draw those to you who don't know you. Lord, I pray as we sing these songs as a time of reflection, that we would remember that our hope is found in you and you alone. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.